Well, I hope that you have asked the Lord that you might grow. It is part of the Christian life. You could almost say it is the Christian life. We're to be growing. We're growing to be more and more like Christ. In fact, you could say that the epistles and the New Testament are all designed to help us grow. Even the whole Bible is to help us grow. Yes, it contains the gospel. Yes, it contains the words needed for new life, for salvation. But why spend the rest of your life studying the Bible? So that you can know God better. And so that you can grow as one of his children. And so today we're continuing in Ephesians. The second half of Ephesians being about that very doctrine. Growth in the Christian life or sanctification. Remember the first half was about just doctrine in general. What it is that God has done for us. Paul really pulled the curtain back and showed us what God was doing even before the moment we were saved. All the way into eternity past when God elected and predestined up through our being born again as believers. And chapter 3, he's talking about the church, Jew and Gentile together. But since 4.1, we've been looking at growth in the Christian life, sanctification, how we are to live. And today I want us to look at living as children of light. We pick up in chapter 5, verse 6, all the way through 14. And let's see what he has to teach us on living as children of light. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists and all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's a lot of darkness in the world. You don't have to turn on the news to know that there's darkness in the world today. Not only is there catastrophic things happening, not only is there their governments doing sinful, evil things, groups of people in our country are doing evil things together, not only is there individuals doing sinful things, but there's Satan who oversees and is stirring all of that up and controlling that as the prince of the air, as the prince who has been given power right now to rule over the earth. There is darkness everywhere. And unfortunately, many Christians, many Christians want to live in darkness. Even though that shouldn't describe us, we are light Many Christians want to go back to the darkness. They're in the light for a while, but then they sneak back into the shadows. And it's almost at a point in Christianity where that's the common teaching today. That you can be a Christian, but continue to live in darkness. It's very concerning. It should concern you that 
our friends, our family, our fellow who we want to call brothers and sisters are Christians by name, but they're living in darkness. Paul's addressing that issue in the Ephesian church. It may not even be an issue yet in that church, but he knows it's going to be sooner or later. And so he addresses it now in this letter to them. And he's teaching them in this section I just read to you that the lifestyle of the Ephesian believers should correspond directly with their new nature. Their new nature, which is light. And they need to function as a light shining into the darkness of sin that continues to plague the lives of all of us, even as believers in Christ. We still are struggling with indwelling sin. And Satan's still trying to tempt us. Now, what I want you to see here is, of course, that message that he's showing us. But let's bring it home to ourselves. You, believer, must live according to what Christ has taught us. That's how you've got to live. That means avoiding darkness. You've got to avoid completely darkness. And you've got to expose sinful behavior in the church. That's really a way to summarize this whole passage. Stay away from darkness and expose sinful behavior in the church. So in this passage, he's going to break it down into really five commands. If you are looking for commands, if you are looking, let's say, at the Greek New Testament, there's seven imperatives, but a couple of them are just opposites, one of the other. So five main commands on how to live as believers in the light of Christ. We need help with this. And thankfully, God has given us everything we need. The scripture is sufficient for how to live. It's sufficient for how to tell us to do church, of course. But it's also sufficient for our everyday life. Everything we need to know about how to live a godly life is right here in the Bible. And in this section, he's just dealing with, of course, the darkness. There are other sections dealing with other topics. Five commands on how to live as a believer in the light of Christ. Firstly, number one, reject false teaching. Paul says you've got to reject it. We have to reject false teaching. We, we've got to live according to the truth right here in God's Word. And false teaching, especially on this issue, sanctification, it has no place. False teaching at all should have no place in the church. But dealing with the topic of sanctification, it is much more dangerous than we often realize. We often think, you know, we're, we're not teaching or letting in any kind of uh, Mormonism, no Catholicism, you know, no Jehovah's Witnesses. But the danger today is on sanctification. It's very subtle. It slips in to your life. And it has no place in the genuine church. It must be seen for what it is and rejected. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. It's a very solemn warning here. Very strong, even stronger in the Greek here. Let no one deceive you at all with empty words. To live as a believer means that we're not being misled by false teaching on sanctification. He's just covered in verses 3, 4, and 5 these sins that send people to hell. And he says, don't let anybody deceive you about that. Sins of sexual immorality, filthy talk, things that are not fitting for Christians. People are trying to deceive you on this. 
Satan would love to see a Christian who says they're saved by Christ, that they're trying to live a holy life. Satan would love to see a Christian fall into sin, go right back into darkness. You know why? Because it hurts the gospel witness. If you were to go back into darkness and into sin and, and live a sinful lifestyle, even for a time, when people see you, they say, yeah, that's Christianity. See, I knew it wasn't, I knew it wasn't transforming. And it hurts your gospel witness. It hurts the church's gospel witness. Let no one deceive you. There are people out there who say that these sins, sexual immorality, are fine for Christians. It's no big deal. And Paul says they're speaking empty words. When teachers say that, when they say sin is no big deal in the Christian life, it's already been put behind you. Don't, don't ever worry about sin anymore. Don't be concerned about growing. That's false teaching. Empty words. Devoid of truth here. Literally, the word means vain. It has no biblical basis. It's very common teaching in our circles even, in the reform circles. Even back around the Reformation, John Calvin was dealing with this in his own church. In fact, they kicked him out of his church because half the church wanted to live however they wanted, and he told them that was sin. Here's a quote from Calvin's commentary on this passage. In all ages, indeed, Satan employs sorcerers. He calls them sorcerers. Like this. Who by unholy scoffs run away from God's judgment, and who lull as if with a charm consciences not grounded in the fear of God. This is a trivial fault, they say. Fornication is a mere game to God. Under the law of grace, God is not so cruel. He has not formed us to be our own executioners. The frailty of nature excuses us. Calvin said that's what they were saying in his day, in the 1500s even. As the church was breaking away from the Roman Catholic system, and going back to the word of God, there were people who wanted to continue to live in their sin. And they ran him out of town eventually for it. Then they realized how bad things really got when they didn't have a preacher. So they asked him to come back. And he picked back up preaching the word. When a church tells people that it's okay to live in sin as a Christian, that's going to affect people's lives. And it's going to affect the church. It's, it's false teaching. A couple of major False teachings today that you may have come across. One's called the non-lordship or free grace movement. They say that a changed life is not expected of a believer in Christ. That some people show no change at all as a Christian. It's called the carnal Christian doctrine. Not that people sometimes stumble into sin and act like the world. That's what Paul's talking about when he talks about carnal Christians in 1 Corinthians. No, they say there's two types of Christians. Those who are sanctified and living a holy life. And those who get saved and just go on sinning and living the life they once lived. Another one's called the hyper-grace movement. That God's grace does so much for you, you don't have to ever strive. You don't have to ever pursue holiness. It's been very popular in recent years. They say we only need to look to the cross. Stop trying. When you sin... Look to the cross. And that's true. That's what's so subtle about these doctrines. Is they're very true to a point. It doesn't go far enough. Because even the text we're looking at today says we are to pursue holiness. That's the whole point of chapter 5. Be imitators of God. 5.1 
Walk in love. Walk in light. Later he's going to say, walk in wisdom in verse 15. We're called to grow. We're called to strive. God's freed us up from slavery to sin. We've got to now live for him. Hyper grace movement says, don't worry about it. And one of their biggest leaders has fallen into adultery multiple times. And he still is out there preaching this message. Well, it's just an old heresy called antinomianism. Anti against nomianism law. Against God's law. Against the law of the Bible. Against the teachings that call us to be holy like God is holy. Jude talks about this in the early church. Jude 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. They slip in unnoticed. You don't, you don't know. It's so subtle. They just sort of slip in. Those who were long beforehand marked out for the condemnation. Ungodly persons. Here's what they teach. They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. And they deny, by doing that, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul deals with this in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Romans 6, 1. Paul's been teaching the Romans about grace, about how God has saved them. And the question that pops up then is, can I just keep sinning? And that makes God's grace look even better. He's going to keep forgiving my sin. And wow, look how good God looks. I'm just going to keep sinning as much as I can. You know what Paul says to that? The strongest answer he can give in the Greek language. May it never be. Now that's English. But in Greek, it's even stronger. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? It's false teaching to go around saying that you can have a lifestyle full of sin as a Christian. And he gives a reason that we're not to listen. The rest of verse 6, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Why should we reject it? Because it's a doctrine that leads to hell. It is a doctrine that leads to hell. False churches, false teaching here on this issue makes us desire to live like the world. And Paul's already told us back in verse 5 that those who commit such sins will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. And he's just tying back into that. The sons of disobedience, that's, that's the world. That's those who live according to their flesh. They live according to their lusts. They commit sin that's in their heart and they love it. They're going to hell. They're sons of disobedience. They disobey God's law. They don't care about God's law. And when a Christian goes into those sins, when a Christian lives in that way, then they're joining with the sons of disobedience. And effectively, they're saying they're not a Christian. And if they don't come out of that, they're going to end up in the same place. They're going to end up in eternal condemnation. Go back to chapter 2. And Paul uses this same phrase in uh, chapter 2, verse 2, when he's describing who we once were as unbelievers. The sons of disobedience are unbelieving people. And that's all of us before we were saved. Starting in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Satan is working. He's working in the world. And he is 
working in these sons of disobedience to disobey God, to sin as much as they want, to commit acts of immorality. And Paul says, don't listen to them because the wrath of God is coming on such sons of disobedience. We must reject it. We have to. As a church, we have to. We have to help the whole church reject that by guarding our own life, what we read, what we take in, and then guarding the church together. Yeah, it's the elder's job, but it's everyone's job as well. We have to watch for false teaching. And it's loving. Just like a parent wouldn't just let their child run out into the interstate to play, we as a body don't want to let people run into false teaching about sanctification. It's deadly. It's dangerous. Second command. Paul wants to teach us how to live as children of light. And and there's a lot of do nots here. Number two, separate from false believers. Starting in verse 7. You need to separate from false believers. This isn't the person that you don't necessarily like because they have some way of talking or some way of acting. They're annoying. This isn't the person that you suspect of sin. This is the person who's living in sin. They're living in immorality, and Paul says, separate from them. Do not be partakers with them. Verse 7, therefore, because sons of disobedience are going to suffer the wrath of God, don't be partakers with them, and even those who sneak into the church is the context here. The context is he's speaking to the church. Yes, watch out for the world. That's assumed. But this whole paragraph here is dealing with how we interact together with the church. Chapter 4 was about that. Chapter 5 is about that. Then we'll move into families by the end of chapter 5. The word partakers here in the NASB means to have a share with others in a possession or relationship. To have a close relationship with somebody who claims to follow Christ, but is going in the opposite direction. They're partaking in these sins. Don't join with them. Paul used the same word in, in Ephesians 3, 6 in a positive light. He said that as Gentiles, we were not fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. But when Christ came, we were. And he gives us that analogy there in chapter 3. But here he says, don't be partakers with those who run into sin. It makes no sense. They're going to hell. Why would you? Unbelievers sneaking in. And they they pull the wool over your eyes. And they want to trick you. Wolves who come in among the flock, Paul says in Ephesians 20. He says, when I leave, watch out because there's going to be wolves. They're going to come in and they're going to teach certain things and people will follow them. They're going to have itching ears and they want to hear these things. Don't join with them. Don't join with them. Don't, Don't be yoked up with them. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Don't be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? And what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? You say, well, he's talking about unbelievers there. What is a person called when they say they're a Christian, but they live nothing like the Bible? They never have. They don't want to. They don't desire the things of God. That's effectively an unbeliever. 
If you go through the steps of church discipline in Matthew 18, at the very end, what does he say? If somebody refuses to repent, if they refuse to repent and they go on in their sinful lifestyle, treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. A Gentile in Jewish terms is what? A person who doesn't believe in God, doesn't follow God. Tax collector is somebody who is a Jew and they've turned against their own people to collect taxes. Now we can't pronounce upon people their eternal state, but we can't follow the scriptures. And we can't be careful who we associate with, who we covenant with in the church. It's one of the reasons we have a membership class. We go through our doctrinal statements, our statement of faith, and our covenant. And we agree to live holy lives by the power of the Spirit. Not perfect lives, but holy lives. We must not be part of any relationship with false believers that would make us participants in a sinful lifestyle. It happens in churches. And he gives a reason for that in verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light. We've had a changed identity. We were once running headlong, just like a sprinter, as fast as he could go into sin. And then Christ changed us. He turned us in a completely different direction. Put us on the right track, in the right race. We don't want to go back to that. Why would we go back to the old race? Why would we go back to the old life, the darkness? That's what characterizes unbelievers. We're saints. We're holy. We're Christ's holy possession. He's creating a people for his own possession for eternity. You're in the light now. You are light in the Lord. That's our new nature. That's who we are now. And it's in the Lord because we're united with Christ. You've been united with Christ. Are you going to drag him back into the darkness? Are you going to take him with you too? The Bible has a lot to say about light and darkness. Jesus taught on that in John 3. Turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, and verse 19. 319. This is the judgment. That the light, that's Christ, has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. People have sinned. And when Christ comes into the world, that's convicting. When he proclaims the gospel, that's convicting. When the Bible speaks to us about Jesus Christ, it's convicting. And so people hate the light. Verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. We're going to look at that in our Ephesians passage in a moment. When you come to the light, suddenly you see your sin and other people see your sin and you're exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. A saved person loves the light. And it shows that God has done this, not us. Also, 1 John 1, 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard. So the same writer of the Gospel of John is writing 1 John the epistle. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there's no darkness at all. There's no darkness at all in God. He is pure light. If, John says, if we say we have fellowship with him, if we are in a relationship, if we are partakers with God and yet walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
those who walk in darkness, those who continue to live in darkness and bring others into the darkness. We've got to separate and not have fellowship with them. Yes, we need to evangelize. Yes, we need to call them out. We're going to look at that coming up. But we're not to join arms with them. We're not to have close relationships with them. Paul's not saying you need to separate, go out, live in a monastery the rest of your life, just get away from everybody. No, he's saying you're in the world and you're interacting with your church, but don't have close relationships with those who will lead you into sin. That's common sense, really. But we need to hear it. We need to be reminded of it. He tells the Corinthians, do not be deceived. Same kind of strong command there. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15.33 If you're running with people, even if they call themselves Christians, if you're running with them and they're sinning all the time, what do you think is going to happen to you? Well, Jesus hung out with sinners. That's the objection they'll often get. Yeah, he did. He ate with them. He talked with them. And he talked about what? Himself and the gospel and how to be saved. That was his goal. His goal wasn't to sit around and approve of them, to watch them sin. His goal wasn't to hang out with them all the time as they ran into their sin. He went to them because it was an opportunity to tell them the truth. Light and darkness are opposed to one another and cannot exist together. Number three, third command Paul gives, how do you, how do you walk as children of light? We've got to reject false teaching, got to separate from false believers. Number three, pursue purity in Christ. Pursue purity in Christ. That's really what the Christian life is about. Okay, separate from sin, false teaching, and those who are leading me into sin are trying to, and now turn to pursue purity in Christ. This is the end of verse 8. Walk as children of light. The word walk is how we live. He's told us walk in a manner worthy of God's calling at the beginning of chapter 4. Walk in a manner that's worthy of the fact that God has elected you to salvation. He's predestined you to salvation. He's worked all these things so that you would be saved. Now walk in a life, live a life according to that. Don't walk as pagans, second part of chapter 4. Walk in love, which we looked at last week. Walk in light here. Walk in wisdom next week, two weeks from now. So how do we do this? What does it mean? To live a life in the light. Well, he's already told us some things not to do. What should we do? Verse 9. For the fruit of light consists in these three things. Three qualities. Three characteristics that we should have as Christians. All goodness. Goodness here is having an interest in others' welfare. Caring for them. It's having a, a moral excellence in your heart that you care for others. That you want to help them. When they have a need. He's talking about the church here. In your church especially. Of course, do this with your neighbors. Do this with unbelievers. But the context here is within the church. Instead of trying to lead your fellow church members into sin, pursue purity in Christ by having goodness and acting upon that. And righteousness. This describes righteous behavior. Doing what God says is right. Righteousness is doing what God says is right. Living according to the Bible. Not what the world says is right. 
Not even what other Christians might say is right, but what the Bible says is right. That's righteousness. God's ways. And then truth. We have to care about truth. And he's not talking about the, the word here. That is true, of course. But you ought to have a quality of truth in your life. A, a, a heart attitude for truth. Wherever truth is found. Not what the news tells you. Not what your friends tell you. Not what the experts tell you. Not what everyone else is saying is true. But what God says is true. And now live that out. Have truth. Have integrity in your life. The focus here is on living out the truth that's in God's word in your own life. You have an element of truth. You are showing people the truth. You are living in an upright way. That means you're displaying these good fruits. These are fruits of the Spirit. These are fruits that that should be in your life. That's what living as a child of light means. And Paul says, trying to learn, verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. I really don't like the translation, trying to learn. It's not really the best, I don't think. It's too much uncertainty. You're just trying to learn. The word here for trying to learn that they translate is to make a critical examination of something, to determine genuineness, to put to the test, to examine. So it carries the idea in the New Testament of testing and proving. You learn something from God's Word that pleases Him. Now you go put it into practice. You become a doer of the Word. And through that, you're learning, you're examining, you're proving God's Word in your life. You're proving it as you live it out. Really, a better word is probably discerning or judging. I like discerning, though. Discernment about how to live the Christian life. That's really the heart of biblical wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible is spoken of as, how do I apply what God's Word says to my life in these specific situations? So you can read goodness, righteousness, truth. Now, how do you apply that to your specific situation? To your argument that you're having with your spouse? To your children and parenting? To your work? To your church? That takes wisdom. And and you're learning that. You're discerning that as you go through the Christian life. And that's what we're to be doing, Paul says. You want to be a child of light? Take these qualities and now prove them out in your life. Use them in a discerning way. Because that's what pleases the Lord. We want to please the Lord. And the Lord is Jesus Christ here. He's our master. We seek to please Him. We want to please Him. We should please Him. And so the cross now has freed us up. All that Christ has done for us has freed us up to live a life pleasing to Him. Let's put these into practice. Let's not go into the the sins of the world, but let's put into practice the things that Christ has given us. Number four, rebuke sin in the church. So as we're living the Christian life, as we're walking in the light of the Lord, we are rebuking sin in the church. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. He's just pointing back to what he's already said earlier in verses 7 through 8a. Don't partake with him. Don't participate with him. They're unfruitful deeds. They're not good fruit. They're unfruitful. They, they don't even really produce good fruit to God at all. And they're deeds of darkness, works of darkness. Really, the implication here is the deeds of the devil. 
don't participate in that. But instead, even expose them. Even expose them. Scrutinize them. Examine them carefully. Bring these sins to light. Let the light shine upon them. Another definition of this word expose in the Greek is to state that someone has done wrong. So you tell them you've sinned with the implication that there's adequate proof of such wrongdoing. You've got to have proof. You can't go around wondering out loud if somebody's sinned. You can't just look at somebody's face and say, you know, he didn't have such a good look on his face when he came in the door. He must be in sin. You need to have proof. You need to have evidence of that. And this word for expose is often translated in different ways in the Bible. In 1 Timothy 5.20, those who commit sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. Talking about elders there. If elders are in sin, they should repent. They continue to sin. They need to be rebuked in the presence of the whole church. The word rebuke is the same as expose back in Ephesians. Titus 1.9, elders should hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute, there's the word, refute those who contradict. Titus 1.13, this testimony is true. For this reason, reprove. Reprove means to correct, to rebuke, to turn them around. Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. They've got to be sound in the faith. Reprove them when they stumble, when they fall, when they run into sin. And bring them back the right direction. That's what it means to expose. In fact, interestingly, this is the word Jesus uses in Matthew 18 when he's talking about church discipline. If you go to Matthew 18, go over there with me to 18.15. And the very first step of church discipline Jesus is going to use this word, the one that Paul uses for expose, reprove, rebuke, refute. Church discipline. We go through these four steps in our new members class. We have to go through them when somebody refuses to repent. Verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him. That's the word right there. Expose to him. Rebuke him. Tell him what it is that he did wrong. And the first step is to do that in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Then he goes on after that. The person won't listen, you take two or three witnesses. If they still won't listen, you tell it to the church. If they won't listen to the church, that's when you let them be as a Gentile and a tax collector to you. We're not in this life by ourselves as Christians. We can't just focus on ourselves. And that's a hard enough struggle, I admit, just to fight your own sin. But what it means to be in a family and the church is that you're looking out for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that means that you're looking out for them in such a way that when they stumble and when they sin, you help them. You correct them. You expose their sin to them. Now, expose doesn't mean publicly. That comes later if they refuse to repent. But first you go to them in private. And you show them where they've done wrong. You show them according to God's word. You expose the darkness in their life with light. It's not easy. It's not fun. But it's what we're called to do. It's what people do. They're looking out for one another. Because sin is dangerous. And we want to help our brothers and sisters not fall into a further trap, into a further hole that they can't get out. 
Verse 12, Paul says that it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Again, we're talking about people in the church. We've got to expose that sin because it's happening in the darkness, in the secret. It's not known publicly. It's something they gather maybe with a group of people or even by themselves and do. And you'll often hear, it's my own life. Don't throw the Bible at me. I can do what I want. Who, who made you, God, to judge me? Right? Don't judge me, God will. That kind of idea. First of all, that's, that's really scary. Because God's judgment is going to be much harder than any church or believer could give. But Paul says we, we should. We should expose those sins. The Bible says to expose it. Jesus says there is Apostle Paul here that we must expose it. We must rebuke it. And we ought not to say more than is necessary, though. That's what he's getting at here. He's not saying never name the sins. Here they are right here in the text. He's saying don't go into detail about it. You don't need to go do a research project on sexual immorality. You don't need to go read books on it. You can read books on how to counsel people. That's different. But he's saying it shouldn't even be discussed. It's not a discussion topic. Name it. Expose it. And that's good enough. Call them out, but don't belabor and dwell on these sins. We shouldn't talk about such things. We shouldn't enjoy talking about such sins, laying out all the details. And I think most of us would say, yeah, that's true. I agree, Pastor. We don't need to talk about those things at church. And then we go off and talk to them with other people. Or we go off and turn on the the television when we get home. Or the internet, R-rated movies, TV 14. Can't believe how bad it's getting. And we just open our brains and fill all this stuff. I don't want to talk about it, but I can pour it into my head. I just want to go research a little bit. I'm just going to go research on the internet about this sin. Suddenly images are coming up everywhere. It's dangerous stuff. Don't even talk about it, Paul says. You see that explosion in Lebanon last week? You see the video of that? It just cleared out many city blocks. 300,000 people are without homes. People thought it was a nuclear bomb. That would have been much worse. That sin, you play with it, it's just going to blow up. You don't talk about it. You don't go into detail about it. You expose it. You call it out. That's it. Now you help them get back to living a godly life. But all things, even though these things are done in secret, Paul says all things are visible. They become visible when they're exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. Shine the light on them. Shine the truth of God's word on their sin. And then they're going to start shining like they should as a Christian. They're going to become a light. You're a light to them, and you're going to help them get out of this sin. That's why biblical counseling is so important. But you can do it. It's just called discipleship. You don't have to have training. Training makes you better at it. Show them where they're wrong. Help them to get going in the right direction. Shine the light on them. Then their sin gets exposed. Then they are light to others. That's what it's about in the Christian life. We're together in this thing. It's not me, myself, and the Holy Spirit. It's us. It's all of us. And if you're a member, you've covenanted to do these things. Number four, last one. Wake up to reality. Wake up. We've got to reject false teaching, separate from false believers, rebuke sin in the church, and wake up to reality. Believers who are living in sin need to wake up. Wake up to the fact that they're in that sin and do something about it. He quotes 
something here. He says, for this reason, it says. So he's going to back up everything he said in the last few verses with a quote. It's similar to Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. But it's not exact. And it's not even a loose quote here. So it's thought that this was an early hymn. Just like we just sang some hymns. This is an early hymn, probably one that they would sing on Easter Sunday as they worship, reminding them of what Christ has done for them. And he's using it here to tell them not to live in sin anymore. It would be similar if I said to you, don't live in sin. Don't you know it says, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Where's that from? Amazing Grace, the most well-known hymn in America. He's just quoting a hymn to sort of prove they already know it. But because he quotes it here and he uses it really as a, as a command to exhort them, it's now part of Scripture. Here's how it goes. Awake, sleeper. This is not an evangelistic hymn. Not in the way Paul uses it here. He uses it as a command. Active commands. Awake, arise, get up. These are active. And it would be really strange for Paul to say, rise up from the dead, when he said back in chapter 2 that the unbeliever is dead in their transgressions and sins. And it's God who makes them alive. And now he's going to turn around and tell us to tell other people, get up out of your sin. Get up out of the grave. Did you hear Frank's testimony? Two years of trying to do that. You know what it took? God to change his heart. Paul's not telling us how to do evangelism. What's the context? Within the church, how do we live as children of light? Well, it's just like the hymn says, awake, sleeper. That's how he uses this idea elsewhere. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6. So then let us not sleep as brothers do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet and the hope of salvation. We get numb to sin. We, we sleep. We lay down. We don't care about sin in our life. And he says, wake up to your sin. Especially if you're in these sins he's just listed. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Which is really greed. Idolatry. Wake up. Get out of your sleep. Go to Romans 13. He's saying, wake up. He's saying, rise up from your sleep. Rise up from the dead even. Wake up, Christian. Don't continue in your sin. Romans 13, he says it a bit different, but it's the same idea. He's talking to believers here. He's not evangelizing. Uh, Romans 13, 11. Do this. It's a command. Knowing the time that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. There it is again. Wake up from your sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Every day is one day closer to Christ's returning. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness and sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh and regard to its lust. Don't provide it all for your flesh. Your flesh desires sinful lusts, sinful actions. Don't desire it. Wake up and realize that's where you're at. Too many Christians are asleep in their sin. 
They act like they're not even sinning. They don't want to talk about it. They want to look at passages about it. Wake up, Paul says, and arise from the dead. It's like going back to your grave when you wallow in sin. You've been saved out of darkness, and now you want to go back and lay down in that grave, sort of pull some of the dirt in on you so you can feel good again? Get up. Active command here. Not saying let God save you to begin with. He's saying you're a Christian. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. Get up out of this grave that you put yourself back into. Literally, the word is resurrect. Resurrect yourself. Come back to life because you're acting like you're dead again. And he's talking about sanctification, not justification. Be holy like I am holy, God says. And when you do that, Christ will shine on you. Christ will approve of what you're doing. He will shine his light even more on you. And you'll be able to see your sin even more clearly. One of my favorite illustrations on this is one I heard in seminary. It's when you're saved, you're, you're buried in a pit of mud. And God saves you by getting you up out of that pit. But you're still covered in mud. But he's not giving you the ability to walk towards the light. He's put the light there. He saved you from dying in the mud. The rest of your life is walking closer and closer to the light. And the closer you get to this light, which is in a dark forest, but it's in the distance and you're moving towards it, the more you see of your sin, your mud, and you can clean a little off the closer you get to the light. You get closer and closer to the light, the more sin you can work on. And even when you're right up close to the light, you still see sin, don't you? That's what he's saying here. Get out of your sin. Go away from the darkness and Christ will shine on you. He'll shine on you. He'll approve of what you're doing and give you more light to see by. That's what we ought to be doing as Christians. We ought to be living in the light. Let's do that as a church. It speaks well of Christ to the world. It helps our witness, helps our worship. Let's pray right now that God would help us to continue to live as children of light. Father, we ask that you would give us your power. We can't do this on our own. You know that, God. You know, as you had Paul write this text, that he means for us to do it by the power of the Spirit, as he told us back in chapter 1. We're just like little insects trying to make it through this big world of sin. And we're just praying, Lord, that you will protect us from harm. We know that you are the all-powerful God, that you've made everything. And you can help us. You can shine more light on us. Let us love Christ so much that we want to be children of light. We want to act like children of light. We want to live like Christ has called us to live. So help us to follow these commands. Pray, Lord, that your name would be glorified as we do this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.